2: Welcome to a Friday show that is not The Nose, our usual Friday show. We've put it on hiatus for a few weeks. We're fairly confident we're bringing it back uh, next week. So, The Nose, as you know it, will be back next week. Uh, before we get into this guest, let me tell you also at the end of the show today, you know, we often have endorsements and recommendations at the end of the nose. in fact we always do, uh, but in this uh, kind of interim format what we're doing is having people here on the staff, people from the newsroom make endorsements and recommendations, and they're loads of fun, so uh, get ready for that. I also want to say just before we dive in here to our two major topics that um you know, I guess I'll make my endorsement, which is if you want to sh- search out a Burt Reynolds performance that you might not have seen, Starting Over is really a remarkable romantic comedy. Candace Bergen gives this kind of breakout performance, and Jill Clayburgh is great as usual. But Reynolds like sells all this stuff with uh, all the comedy. He sells it with just an arched eyebrow here and a muttered aside there. It's a really minimalist, restrained performance, but it's one that you wish he gave more of. Well, anyway, starting over, find it if you've never seen it, or watch it again if you haven't seen it in 15 years. Okay, we're going to talk a little bit about, speaking of entertainment, what's gone on in the entertainment world during this turbulent time when there's a lot more choosing of sides than there were in the past. And so somebody who's been writing uh, about this and who joins us today is Steven Zeitschik, covers the business of entertainment for the Washington Post examining the industry's trends, challenges, issues and ideas. We're we'll talking a little bit about what happens when actors and comedians try to navigate these uh, churning waters and if we have time too, we'll also discuss the problems uh, plaguing Thomas the Tank Engine. You probably know that Sir Topham Hatt has, you know, been called out by the Me Too movement. I think he's been touching the the couplers of female trains. Anyway, let's get going here. First of all, Stephen Zajic, welcome to the show. Great. Thank you so much for having me. The premise of your writing about this is kind of that, you know, if you go back to the Vietnam era, there was Jane Fonda who was speaking out very powerfully uh, and and making her presence very visually and physically felt uh, about the Vietnam War. And then there were a whole bunch of rock musicians. And that was kind of about it. I mean, people didn't really think of actors as necessarily having particularly vivid politics. But it almost seems as though it's almost not an option these days, right? I mean, people almost seem to expect at least certain celebrities to to do or say certain things. Maybe you can elaborate on that.
1: Well, it's a great point. I think, you know, you go back 20, 30, 40 years, there certainly were always outspoken, uh, you know, people in Hollywood, people who made their their opinions known, either uh, by speaking out or by uh, campaigning for certain issues or, or politicians. But You know, it really wasn't the norm, and it certainly didn't come through in mainstream entertainment in that way. I mean, the classic example would be late-night television, where you had, you know, Johnny Carson. You know, he'd make jokes about various presidents and various political figures, but he never betrayed who he actually uh, aligned with or what he he felt. It was sort of an equal opportunity, often genial kind of comedy. Cut to 2018, I mean, you can't turn on a late-night show – without knowing where someone is coming from, Uh, case in point, of course, being Stephen Colbert, who uh, pretty much makes a living on a kind of anti-Trump politics every night. And then when you have someone who doesn't and who tries to kind of keep it in a lighter, more escapist sort of vein, uh, a la Jimmy Fallon, uh, he gets hammered. He gets hammered in the ratings. Uh, He gets hammered for normalizing Trump, as he did in a famous hair-tussling incident uh, from a couple of years back. So, you know, the tables have really turned now where not only, as you say, is it Uh, kind of uh, common to 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 go uh, after some politicians and take political stands but it's actually obligatory and and I think that's a real shift from what we saw even you know 10 or 20 years ago.
2: Right so just to highlight that contrast uh, let's hear first uh, how Stephen Colbert sounds these days. One thing we know to be true is that when it comes to Trump whatever you think is happening is happening. (laughs) Exhibit A an editorial that came out like an, hour, LIKE AN HOUR BEFORE THIS TAPING IN THE NEW YORK TIMES TITLED, I AM PART OF THE RESISTANCE INSIDE THE TRUMP ADMINISTRATION,
1: MR. PRESIDENT, THEY TRACED THE RESISTANCE, IT'S COMING FROM INSIDE THE WHITE HOUSE, GET OUT OF THERE,
3: AND, and STAY OUT OF THERE, IT'S JUST GET FOR YOUR OWN,
2: JUST, AND HERE'S HOW JIMMY FALLON SOUNDS.
4: When I saw that Trump insulted me on Twitter, I was gonna tweet back immediately, but I thought I have more important things to do. Then I thought, wait, shouldn't he have more important things to do? He's the president of the... What are you doing? You're the president! Why are you tweeting at me?
2: So they're both being political there. But um, but but Steven Zeitschik, one of the points your article makes is that this doesn't come naturally to Fallon. There was some conversation within the show and with Lauren Michaels, uh, the Saturday Night Live founder and now producer of uh, the of Fallon's show about whether he should venture out in those waters. But it, uh, there's a risk, right? It, it either fits you or it doesn't. And if it's an uncomfortable fit, it almost Accentuates the problem that you had in the first place.
1: I think that's the problem, and that's the problem. Fallon has had, is how does he tried to get a little bit more political? And people have said, "Well, stay in your lane." And so, you know, I think the danger here, you know, for a lot of entertainers, is if you go too political, you're really only going to appeal to a niche audience. But if you don't go political at all, uh, people will think you're uh, you're uh, kind of out of touch. I mean, one case in point, which I didn't uh, mention and have a chance to mention, the story is Taylor Swift, who you know, I think has really tried to stay outside the political fray and maybe just because she has that many supporters uh, from across the political spectrum, or maybe she just doesn't want to get involved. Uh, And I think a lot of people have criticized her for it and said, look, you've got to speak out more on these issues. Uh, Frankly, people on both sides have criticized them forward. So I don't think we'll shed any tears for celebrities, but but they are in a bit of a pickle here when it comes to speaking out uh, for or against Trump and, and politics.
2: Right. So Taylor Swift gets criticized if she doesn't speak out. Jennifer Lawrence, who hasn't hesitated to speak out and talk about throwing <laughs> martinis in the president's face, has had some movies that don't, didn't do as well as her movies typically do. Now, it's hard to map from one of those things onto the other. Uh, but it, it raises questions, anyway, that maybe she's paying a price with the audience that doesn't want to hear her politics.
1: Yeah, I, look, it's hard to know with Jennifer Lawrence. She's made some unconventional choices, but her last three films, uh, including Passengers, which was really designed as more of a sort of big budget tentpole, have all underperformed according to their own expectations. And you know, there's a feeling in Hollywood, you talk to people in a talent representation community and elsewhere, that basically this is not, you know, this is not an accident, that there's, you know, she's been very, she said the Trump administration is an obsession for her. She's spoken out, you know, early and often, and uh, that maybe some people just don't want to see her. I mean, it, look, these things are hard to kind of parse, uh, but when you try to appeal and need to appeal to as many people as Jennifer Lawrence, who just a couple of years ago with the Hunger Games was the biggest movie star in the country, uh, it's, it, you know, it may just be that no one star can, can make everyone happy these days.
2: Um, it does seem as though occasionally I mean, one one thing we have to acknowledge is some people are really good at this and they it is second nature to them and they know how to express themselves. But actors and comedians aren't necessarily trained to do political commentary. And so you've got De Niro at the Tonys where, I mean, it just was this pretty blunt crude, uh, profanity-driven tirade against uh, Trump. You've got Roseanne Barr, who basically disrupted her entire career by some pro-Trump, anti-Parkland uh, protester comments. I mean, these, it's, it, these people are kind of swimming in waters that they, it's not their natural swimming pool. Right.
1: And I think that's, that's kind of the, <laughs> been the argument from the other side. This sort of Taylor Swift school, if you will, which is hey, look, this is not something we're trained to do or we should be doing. And if it's off brand for us, um, and people don't want to hear it, why are we doing it? I mean, look, this is something you know, what's you know, all politics are local and 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 all localities are political. We're at we're at a moment now where everything is political, and so can you avoid it? I, I suppose you can, but but on the other hand, if you try to confront it, as you say you're going to end up maybe offending a lot of people. So, again, no one's shedding any tears here, but I, I just think it's very hard for, for some personalities to navigate. And, you know, that's why I think someone like De Niro has just said, you know what, gloves are off. I'm going to say exactly what I feel. If you go to go see my next movie, so be it. But I'm just going to do it, uh, make my handlers very worried, but I'm not going to care about them.
2: Right. And in a, in a way, with De Niro, because a lot of his characters are kind of unhinged, you know, a lot of his characters <laughs> are unpredictable. Right. First of all, he's Bob De Niro and like how much damage can he do to himself at this point? And, but also, it's he's sort of almost in that classic character that he's playing when he does stuff like this. And I think uh, there, the risk is probably bigger to people... About whom we haven't necessarily made up our minds. So one of the examples you cite is one of the two Duplass brothers, in this case, Mark Duplass. Now, if we sat here and tried to explain to everybody all of the different projects, and movies and TV projects and stuff, that the, and a book that the Duplass brothers are involved in, we'd, we'd be here all day. But he. He promoted Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro does a pretty far right kind of Breitbarty podcast uh, on on Twitter. And there was I mean, I guess what I really want to say here, Stephen Zajic, is we're also living in a time where this doesn't roll off anybody. People, if they hear that you've picked the side that's different from their side, they go a little bit more nuts than maybe they did 15 years ago.
1: Well, that, that's the other side of the equation. And, and you make a great point, which is that, you know, t- you know, it's mostly true that stars weren't getting political, uh, you know, a number of decades ago, but, but some were. And, you know, I think of even an example from just six years ago with Clint Eastwood in the empty chair, uh, at the Republican convention. And if you remember back then, there was some furor then, but it was not the level of intensity, the kind of, social media amplification we're getting now. So, you know, the, the intensity of the reaction um, is just is just uh, almost unheard of. I, I talked to one kind of high-ranking Hollywood publicist who just said to me, I would tell every client, and I don't think I was able to include this in the piece, but she said, I would tell every client at any moment to say nothing because the scrutiny is going to be so intense, that the public is paying attention in a way uh, just because of the climate we live in that they never did before, uh, that I w- it's just not worth it. Of course the flip side of that column is that people's attention spans are that much shorter. So uh, if there is an uproar, uh, it usually passes a lot faster. But but that's a key part of this whole equation, which is it's not just um, you know, kind of celebrities who are changing or forced to change their behavior. We're reacting and looking for things a lot differently than than uh, than we have before as well.
2: I think also there are sort of different levels of activity. All right. So Paul Newman was always available to do a fundraiser for a Democratic candidate, maybe do an environmental thing, make some personal appearances, and uh, almost do kind of whistle stops for Democratic candidates. I could can name some other actors who fit into that category. And yeah, everybody's always known that Eastwood's pretty conservative. Kevin Costner uh, also was often singled out as one of the very few actively Republican actors in Hollywood. Bruce Willis for a while. But I think people... I mean they kind of you could build that into your understanding I don't think people didn't go see HUD you know because Paul Newman was was out raising money for Bobby Kennedy or something you know I, I just I don't think those things really bothered people very much about Paul Newman and 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 I think you know Eastwood's characters Costner's characters I don't know they're they're kind of cranky crusty potentially conservative characters too in, in a way really the the risks to me seems to be people about whom we don't know as much we haven't hardened off our perceptions of them and so we're still kind of choosing them from the vast cheesecake factory mem- uh, menu of entertainment and, and if they add one more thing to it that we don't like you know if they put cilantro on themselves then you know they, they will lose people
1: yeah no I think that's right I think it it's it, you're absolutely right that with some people who are more established we already think of them a certain way they care less we're we're probably a little more entrenched I mean Uh, you know, Tom Cruise just had a hit this summer with Mission Impossible. And someone was saying if he came out and made a a really bold political statement, would that have affected him? And I suspect you're right. I mean, you know, Tom Cruise has been in dozens of those action movies. And I don't think people who were going to see him would just suddenly stop. I think it is more an issue with with formative stars. But I also think you make another good point when you talk about just sort of how we were able to bifurcate um, in an earlier era, you know, good example from this week, slightly outside the entertainment realm, is Nike. I mean, you know, look, there have been, you know, Nike has taken stands before. I'm sure, you know, Phil Knight took some stands. And yet, you know, here we are. People are burning their sneakers because they don't like uh, an ad and they don't like a spokesperson. And that's, you know, this is, of course, referring to Colin Kaepernick. Uh, Just Do It ad that came out earlier in the week. And so, to me, the, the idea here that uh, we are now making decisions based on, uh, you know how we feel about a particular entertainer or spokesperson or brand's politics. That that's even part of the menu that we're even looking at the cilantro. I think is entirely new and and entirely complicated. So
2: I, I want to just switch switch gears a little bit, although not entirely, uh, Stephen, uh, and, and talk a little bit. I you know I my son used to watch Thomas the Tank Engine. I never really gave much thought to the. Politics or gender politics or crypto colonialism uh, of Thomas the Tang Engine, but now that I think about it, Sir Topham Hat really is sort of the modern—he's uh, the model of a you know sort of colonialist oppressor who basically has these t- trains that whom he treats like slaves, more or less. (laughs) They just have to do whatever he wants. They have to cancel whatever their plans are if he orders them to go do something else. Uh, There aren't very many uh, women trains. I think, you know, from a long time, I think a train named Emily was the only one that's kind of featured at all. Um, I never really thought about this too much, but there is something that is decidedly not woke uh, about Thomas the Tank Engine. So pick up the story from there. What are they doing about this?
1: Well, it's, a, it's one of the more unusual stories. I'm—I don't have kids, and I—I'm I, long removed from Thomas and Tank Engine days, so I—I I was sort of a little bit uh, unaware of of how not woke he was, and kind of how musty the brand seemed. I know it's—you know—this is a 70-year-old brand, and even the TV series goes back to the 80s. But well, when I kind of tuned into this, as it were, I thought, yeah, this is this is pretty. I mean, this character's kind of—he's just from another time, as you say. There really aren't any female characters on it. He doesn't seem to go anywhere. Uh, he stays on this island, this fictional island of Sodor. It's not very in tune with the sort of global audience. And you know, Mattel, which owns Thomas, uh, basically said the same thing. They said, "Hey, wait a second. First of all, our ratings are slipping, our sales are slipping. And also, this, and not unrelatedly, this 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 brand is not really uh, in tune with the 21st century." So they reached out to the United Nations of all of all organizations, which is not. A place you think would necessarily be involved in the development of a Hollywood script or or toy merchandising, and um, and the UN, to their credit, kind of said, you know what, we're going to try to get uh, involved here, and we're going to try to get our messages out. And so, um, you know, just kind of to, to summarize a very long process, they spent 18 months basically developing and and, and having input on these on these scripts, and uh, the result, which I think uh, listeners can uh, start seeing as of this weekend on Nick Nick Jr. Uh, and other venues, is is, is a new relaunched kind of redone, uh, made over, spanking new, you know, 21st century Tom's a Tank Engine where there are female characters, there are characters from other countries, Um, you know, there's just something that's a little bit more global about it, and that's all the result of the U.N. to the point, even, Colin, that there are um, these Sustainable Development Goals, the U.N. has these 17 goals that having to do with the environment and education and things of that sort, and um, they're all, they're not explicitly named as such, but they all work their way, or at least I think five or six of them work their way into the script, so a whole new model for how to do uh, entertainment, kind of kids' entertainment, which is to say, uh, a way that's um, you know really being influenced by global politics and 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 sort of altruism, and and we'll see how it works.
2: Right, we will see how it works. I, I still remember the partnership between the League of Nations and Popeye back in 1923. Didn't work out anywhere <laughs> that well. All right. Well, Stephen Zeitich, uh, so great to have you, Steven Zeitich, who covers the business of entertainment for the Washington Post. Thanks for being with us today.
1: Thank you so much.
2: It was a pleasure, really. And we're going to take a little break. And as promised, uh, yesterday, you know, I said, uh, if you want to uh, to understand what our show is, consider that yesterday was a 49-minute, two-person conversation about semiotics. Today, we're going to talk about wiffle ball. Uh, and I, I'm proud. I'm a prou- proud of the disparity between these two topics. Maybe there is no disparity. We're going to find out from Ben McGrath when we come
4: back that your paradise is here. Your paradise, you famous people. Your paradise is to think that we shall care.
2: You are unwise. You always were. All that you'll ever mean will be a statue in a sweat. All right. Well, the wiffle ball, uh, wiffle technology in general, was invented uh, not too far from where I'm sitting right now in Shelton, Connecticut. Uh, And one of the many uh, adorable details in Ben McGrath's new article in The New Yorker uh, about all this is that the reason it's spelled W-I-F-F-L-E is that the penurious, penny-pinching Yankee founder thought you could save a little money on signs if you didn't have to have an H. Um, That's the way we think in this state. (laughs) Uh, anyway, uh, Ben McGrath has uh, written uh, this terrific piece. Of the men who have taken whiffle ball to a crazy competitive place—that uh, pretty well sums the story up. And Ben McGrath, uh, thanks for joining our show. Oh,
3: thanks for having me.
2: So, um, first of all, maybe we should remind people what wiffle ball is. Uh, most of us who had childhoods, most of us boys who had childhoods, and probably not a few girls, um, remember just turning backyards into baseball stadiums. Often somebody in the neighborhood would have a backyard. This is certainly the case for me, where there were, were base paths just because people had run around this imaginary diamond so many times playing uh, wiffle ball. But but remind everybody, what, what in it's purest undoctored state is wiffle ball.
3: I think of it some in some ways as the suburban uh, tradition of stickball. You know, you hear about sort of Brooklyn stickball, stoop ball kind of things in the city, and, and wiffle ball is a, a suburban adaptation of that where you've you're trying to play baseball basically, but you've only got you know maybe 80 feet between your the fence separating your neighbor's yard from your yard and the and the oak tree that, you know, eliminates all possibility of, of hitting <laughs> hitting past it. And so you make do with what you've got. And so a wiffle ball is a plastic ball with holes in it. It can't go very far, and it can't really hurt anyone or anything. It can't break a window. Uh, and the and the bat is a yellow, that yellow kind of long, narrow bat that's shaped like a broomstick, again, meant to kind of mimic the stick ball, you know, hitting a broom on a, on a stoop.
2: So what you've discovered is that there are grown men, uh, I guess uh, you, we can call them grown men, uh, <laughs> who, who, are, who have taken this to a whole different level, who are, are playing wiffle ball. And uh, in, in, in many respects, yeah, as you say, I, I think wiffle ball existed partly so that you could play a game like that and not break windows. Um, there, are, there are these men who have made it once again into a hyper-competitive uh, uh, kind of an adult sport. Tell us about the Palisades Wiffle Ball League.
3: Yeah, so the Palisades Wiffle Ball League. One of the things that I like the most about it is that, uh, in spite of its hyper competitiveness, which we'll get to in a minute, it it is it is played on the on a grass field that's abutting an elementary school. So it it sort of cuts it down to size a little bit in that respect. But these are guys. There's five or six men on a team, and they go and they play. And the fields are unlike your yard or my yard, where you, where you're dealing with poison ivy and and tree branches and footpaths. These are sort of uniform fields with chain link fences and standardized dimensions and, you know, formal strike zones that are, that are prefabricated and they're playing with a very sort of strict set of rules. No running. Incidentally, you mentioned, you know, beating a path into, yeah. your, into the, into the grass in your yard. These guys don't run the bases. It's really just hitting and pitching and, and some fielding. Uh, but they're, they're throwing the ball, 95
2: miles an hour right so it's weird because i mean uh, in your description of this i mean if we were just talking about major league baseball there's a common conversation we've had it on this show uh, about whether the fact that everybody in major league baseball is throwing 93 people are throwing 91 mile an hour change-ups in in major league baseball uh and and home runs seem to be dominating everything else and so you might think that wiffle ball (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> would be a good place to go for subtlety, but that's not the case at all. I mean, they're basically trying to create a, a game that mirrors some of the excesses uh, of Major League Baseball right at this moment.
3: Yeah, and I think it's important to, to think about actually, if you go back to the to the founding of the company in Shelton, Connecticut, as you mentioned, part of the reason that it was created was so that David M- Mullaney, the the founder of the company, uh, so that his son, could throw a curveball ball without damaging his arm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it, it, you know, wiffle ball is partly a way of allowing your random Joe Schmo or your random 12-year-old kid to feel like he can be as good a pitcher as the people he watches on television. And, of course, in that case, it's using the physics of the holes in the ball. These guys are taking it to a level beyond that because they're carved, they're literally carving the ball up with knives, which allows them to throw it harder and control it better.
2: Right. So let's hear a little clip from a video that uh, runs on the New Yorker website uh, accompanying Ben's uh, article.
5: Some people on our comments on the videos are like, oh, just play baseball. Like, no, we like to
6: play wiffle ball. It's quicker than baseball. It gets exciting at this level. One nothing game last inning. You hit a bomb off the best pitcher. There's nothing better.
4: It's that that battle where it's specifically pitcher versus batter and and it's the unique thing is
2: that there's no umpire, there's no, no gray area ever. It is what it is. So Ben, there there's some odd contradictions or ways in which uh, there, there are poles that are pulling in opposite directions. There's a way in which um, some of these guys are kind of even more. Or let's say less conventionally athletic-looking than some of the guys in you know your, some your beer league softball team, and they're on the sidelines vaping or smoking cigarettes right. and stuff like that. And then there's some guys who, like the two guys who are in that video, are pretty darn athletic-looking. There are people who are pretty halfway decent athletes who are traveling long distances to get to this New York State uh, uh, ball field, right?
3: Yeah. So so the league, the Palisades Whiffball League, is is based in Rockland County, New York, which is just about 15 miles north of New York City. Um, but one of the pitchers I talked to, uh, who is a college, to, and it gets to your point also about the other levels of athleticism, he's a college baseball pitcher in North Carolina, and he lives in Chesapeake, Virginia, which is a seven-hour drive, although he said he can do it in six and a half, uh, from the wiffle ball field. And he comes up here on the weekends to play in this wiffle ball league, and he's a guy who could he can hit 98 on the radar gun um, and I think he told me he can, depending on the wind, he can throw up to sixteen different, up to sixteen different pitches uh, that he has some modicum of control over.
2: Now, in this league, uh, I think this this is sort of the big surprise about all this. In this league, I mean, George Brett would be feel vindicated. George Brett would be just a, <laughs> mis, a misdemeanor offender. You are allowed to. One might even say encouraged to. A. Doctor the Wiffle Ball, and yeah. y- you have to start with an official regulation, Shelton, Connecticut Wiffle brand and Wiffle Ball, and Doctor the Bat. I mean, so uh, explain how that works.
3: Yeah, so that was the, the thing that I was the most surprised by when I first started looking into it was that there were no yellow bats. And I, to me, when I think of Wiffle Ball, I think of the two products hand, hand in hand. A, you've got the, the, ball, the ball with the eight oblong holes around the top half, and B, you've got the, the slender yellow bat. And I have a lot of residual, nostalgic fondness for that yellow bat. Um, I will say, when I was a teenager, I used to try and doctor the bat myself. Uh, I would saw off the top and stuff newspapers down the down it and stuff. You know, in the in the silly hope that that would make the ball go farther. Uh, these guys are are taking it to a, a different level because they're they're dispensing with the yellow bat altogether and they're starting with bats with much bigger barrels. And they're sawing off the handles and they're inserting wood dowels or aluminum rods and then screwing, you know, wooden metal knobs in the bottom to make the bats whip around more and, you know, lots of tape. Uh, It it looks, you know, and they're wearing cleats. I mean, if you show up, you wouldn't be it wouldn't immediately be obvious that they're playing wiffle ball until you see the holes in the ball.
2: Right. But the holes in the ball, they, they are also working with exacto knives and stuff like that to create. I mean, as you say, the you know, the wiffle ball was born during an era where there was something called little leaguer's elbow. Uh, there was this notion that uh, if kids threw curve balls they really could wreck up their arms. Uh, so here was this wonderful thing where the ball could curve. But they're what are they trying to do with the? I mean, it feels like a wiffle ball already is doctored. So what, what are they doing to it? Well, so part of what
3: they're trying to do is to eliminate some of the vagaries of, of the wind. Uh, you know, nobody really knows all that much about how and why a football moves the way it does. The, The, the general idea though, is that because of the holes, the air pressure, uh, is stronger on one side of the ball than on the other. And you have air moving through the ball and that allows the ball to start sort of shift one way or the other. If you, if you get a ball out of the box from the factory in Shelton, It'll have instructions on the on the side of the box that, that tells you how to throw what they call a curve and a slider. The slider is really a screwball, but um, and, and according to their instructions, you know you want to you want to you know position the balls on the left hand side of your hand if you want the ball to drift to the left, and position the balls on the right hand side if you want the ball to drift to the right. What these guys have found is that once you start throwing the ball hard the ball will it'll it'll break so sharply that you can't possibly expect it to land in the strike zone 45 feet away so they they carve all these patterns uh you know on this on the plastic slits between the holes on the top above the holes and on the and kind of basketball shaped lines on the on the bottom half the sort of solid hemisphere of the ball all in an attempt to basically create turbulence around the ball uh and and through repetition, you know, become a little more predictable about what you're doing. They're not just carving one pattern. They'll, they'll, go, they'll go after the man with a bucket of balls, and some of them will be carved one way, and some of them will be carved another way, and some of them won't be carved at all. And so part of what they're choosing in their, in their pitch selection of the batter is, you know, which kind of ball am I going to throw and, and what what can I expect it to do because of that?
2: So uh, we're talking to ben, ben McGrath from The New Yorker. And um, uh, it probably makes more sense for you to read Ben's article than for Ben and I to, to, to sketch out uh, another subplot in the article, which is there are all these kind of Sunni and Shiite competing uh, sects uh, about wiffleball. There are different kinds of leagues that don't necessarily uh, agree with, with the way things are done in, in, in another league. There are uh, podcasts and people who refuse to be on podcasts. And there are YouTube videos and, and, and taunting in the comments sections of YouTube videos. And one senses that back in Shelton, the Tigris and Euphrates uh, of, of Wiffleball, there's kind of a sense of maybe things are getting a little weird out there in, in the hinterlands.
3: Yeah, I mean part of it is that they've they've created something so successful that it has it has sort of escaped their grasp, right? It's a little bit like a band-aid or a Xerox or, you know, the the Wiffleball is such a successful product that that people use it to mean whatever they want it to mean and and the people in shelton would like it to mean exactly what they sell which is a ball in a box and a yellow bat um and of course these guys in the in the league that i've uh written about here don't use the yellow bats and that makes it complicated for the for the company who you know i think in theory they'd love to be able to to say you know we're proud of you doing what you're doing but on the other hand. The, you know, you're not selling their pro their product if you go and watch that league. Um,
2: no, and we should say what they are selling is their own version of the product, their own, and and <laughs> exactly. and including a a kind of bat whose name we can't really say uh, on the air, uh, a kind of pre-doctored bat, uh, and whose commercial we had to heavily bleep. But here it is. Can't get the job done with that little stick?
4: Not to worry, help is here. We've been doing improved, Get that out of here, bat! Get that Hit bombs like you've never hit before! Humiliate the opposition! Celebrate like a champion! The all-new Get That S*** Out of Here Bat has a new handle and knob designed for improved comfort and durability, and it still has that pop the fast-pitch hitters love! Get that out of here! But get that out of here, bat! Only from Palisades! Get yours at palisadeswbl.com!
2: So, Ben, uh, this is the perfect place for us to kind of land this plane. Uh, you, this very sound of that commercial strikes me as an audio violation of, of my own halcyon memories uh, of Wiffle Ball, you know, growing up. I mean, apparent, apparently you were a little bit of an attempted bad doctorer. but in general as we were growing up, this was sort of there was a certain innocence to the game, and it was a game that we played while we were still rel- relatively innocent people, and, and I couldn't exactly detect your own emotional valences uh, in this piece. I found myself reading this piece thinking, I don't know. this is like this really nice thing I remember from being eleven. And these guys seem like jerks <laughs> 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 who are kind of wrecking it. Uh, I don't know. Did you have any particular reaction uh, along those lines?
3: Well, look, I-, I wouldn't call them jerks because I got to know them, and i and i and I found myself liking them all quite a bit. Mm. Uh, but I definitely had some of the reaction that you're describing in general which is that you've taken this thing that i that is very important to my vision of of youth and and innocence uh and you've you've stripped it of all the all the quirks that that are you know most appealing you know part of part of the fun for me is trying to negotiate the the overhanging trees and the and the you know the one person's yard that has a you know a hole in near the mound where you might twist your ankle on another person's that has a dog you got to be scared of. You know, the, the sort of professionalizing it strips it of some of the charm. It might help for people to know that the, that voice on the um, on that commercial you played, that's the voice of the the commissioner of this league. And he's a guy who comes from a very different background uh, from yours and mine, I think, which is that he was a stunt motorcycle rider. Uh, and not actually an avid wiffle ball player as a kid. He came to wiffle ball, basically you know, with a blank slate as an adult uh, you know, in his late 30s looking for some new competitive outlet uh, to use in his life after he thought he'd aged out of motorcycle riding. So he brought a, a different kind of macho uh, mindset to it and, and created something that's kind of unique in its own right. So I, I give him a lot of credit for that.
2: All right. Well, uh, if you want more and you will surely want more, uh, go on the New Yorker website or get your actual copy of the New Yorker magazine. Ben McGrath, uh, staff writer for the New Yorker, the men who have taken wiffle ball to a crazy competitive place, ran in the August 30, uh, ran on August 31st. Thanks for joining us.
3: Oh, thanks for having me.
2: All right. We're going to take a break. When we come back, you'll hear members of our staff, voices you don't often hear, uh, in many cases, uh, endorsing things.
7: Ball 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 Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants with help from me, Kyone Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Roy Cohn. On Monday, we'll be back with news from over the weekend on the Scramble. And now, back to Colin.
2: All right. So what we've been doing lately while we've put the nose on hiatus is inviting members of our staff, members of the whole um, WNPR staff uh, to contribute endorsements. Let's get going. Uh, here's a voice you don't hear too often, Carmen Baskoff, who produces uh, Where We Live uh, here on Connecticut Public Radio.
8: All right. This week, I would like to endorse the television show The Good Place on NBC Um, This is a bit of a selfish endorsement. I've suggested to Colin several times to talk about The Good Place on the Nose and have not succeeded yet, so maybe this will inspire them. Um, But I'd like to endorse this show because um, it's very funny. I'd say it's one of the more absurd television shows on TV. The premise, without giving too much away, is um, a woman dies and ends up in heaven but quickly realizes that she doesn't belong there. Um, And I would hazard a guess that it's the only show on primetime TV that um, has ethics and moral philosophy as like a primary plot component. Um, So season one and season two are on Netflix. Season three premieres on September 27th. So you've got a couple weeks to binge and catch up on the whole thing. Um, And... I'm not the only one around WNPR who likes The Good Place. Um, our senior director of radio, Katie Otolarski, um, Where We Live producer, Lydia Brown, is also a big fan. Um, you should check it out. And yeah, you too, Colin and Pants.
2: All right. Uh, she's getting more pushy and forceful in these endorsements. And I, and I kind of like that. I respect that. All right, so uh, let's go to Tucker Ives, a news producer uh, here at WNPR.
6: My endorsement is probably an acquired taste. You probably won't get it right away, you may dismiss it entirely because it's sports radio, but one of the best shows on the radio today is the Dan Lebitard Show with Stu Gotts on ESPN Radio and on TV most days on ESPN News, or as they call it, ESPN Ooze. Don't like sports? You don't have to. Every Tuesday, for instance, Ron McGill from Zoo Miami joins the show to answer animal questions and to do a live play-by-play call of a nature documentary clip. Also on Tuesdays, Miami Herald columnist Greg Cody shares his back-in-my-day essay where he reminisces on the joys of paper receipts or pocket change. So Dan Lebitard is a jaded former sports reporter. Stu Gatz, his co-host, represents without any remorse the shallow, money-and-attention-hungry sports fan and talking head with an aversion to any real controversy other than calling Kevin Durant and Lionel Messi frauds. So I recommend starting off with some clips of the show, then work your way into the Best Of podcast, and pretty soon you'll be listening to all four hours of the show. And don't worry, it's not actually four hours. It's still commercial radio, so each hour only contains 30 minutes of commercials that are cut out of the podcast. And if you don't care for it, you can always come crawling back to us.
2: All right. Uh, the next one is uh, these These are usually the most controversial uh, of the staff endorsements, the ones done by our senior producer here at The Colin McEnroe Show, Betsy Kaplan.
0: I want to endorse the oscillating hoe. It's a long-handled garden tool that has a double-edged blade on the bottom. It's a couple of inches wide and each side is sharp. It looks kind of like a stirrup. You put the hoe in the garden and when you pull back on it, the blade gets below the surface dirt and rips out the weed by the roots. And the beauty of it is it works both ways by pushing it forward or pulling it back. The repetitive movement can make my elbow sore. I broke it when I was a kid, and now it bends backward more than my other elbow. Other than that minor problem, I love this hoe. Keith thinks it's a stupid thing to endorse, but I like the order of a weedless garden more than Keith. The weeds don't really bother him that much, but we get a lot of weeds. We had two gardens this year, one in our backyard where we grew mostly vegetables. I even got a few cantaloupes, the other a bigger plot in our town's community garden. Maybe I like to keep it weedless because I can never get the rows in the garden straight. The rows always come out slanted. Anyways, the hoe head comes in two sizes, regular or wide. I recommend the wide.
2: I I call something. The next time we do these, Keith gets to do an endorsement. Keith, who is Betsy Kaplan's husband, and who is often, you know, ever so slightly slighted, I think, in these these endorsements. Uh, I think he should be allowed to to endorse a, a thing or two next time we do a round of these. Uh, all right, here's uh, Jonathan McNichol, the producer of this particular episode of The Colin McEnroe Show, and many other episodes as well.
5: We covered Black Klansman on the nose a few weeks ago, and it set me on a little Spike Lee renaissance. And so I want to endorse what I'm pretty sure is like the least Spike Lee movie-seeming Spike Lee movie. Uh, 2006's Inside Man is basically just a medium budget, kind of glossy looking heist movie. Uh, Denzel Washington is the police detective. Clive Owen is the bank robber. Christopher Plummer owns the bank. And Jodie Foster is some sort of slippery seeming high rent power brokering fixer-ish character or something. And here's the thing. It's a lot of fun. Uh, The heist is super clever. Owen and Denzel are charming and funny. It's tense and suspenseful. It's surprisingly almost not at all violent, really, relatively. It's, though, got just enough of a sort of undercurrent of real, you know, dark stuff going on that you can understand why Spike Lee made it. And, by the way, Spike Lee, uh, that guy's going places. Um one day he'll make a serious movie that's actually about something and probably get nominated for some awards or something. For now, though, we've got this fun, twisty little crackling crime thriller. It's called Inside Man, and it's from 2006. All right, uh, we should mention
2: that they just made me think of something, which is that uh, we had a long conversation on the news a few weeks ago about the uh, plans for the uh, um, Academy Awards to include, in this next cycle, a special category for popular films, for films that were, you know, designed basically to sell popcorn, et cetera, as opposed to make statements of high art. Uh, the Academy has at minimum postponed this for one year it's not going to happen uh, this year uh, it even conceivably might never happen so that's like you know we, we occasionally should probably update some of these topics that we talk about very strongly at any given week and then kind of set them aside for a while um, all right so we're gonna we're continuing on with this uh, and once again if you're just uh, tuning in typically what we do at the end of the nose we have three panelists here and they make a few recommendations or endorsements I stole the term endorsements from slate culture gabfest I always acknowledge that from time to time to ward off lawsuits. Uh, so let's move on to Carlos Mejia, a digital producer here at
4: WNPR. I'd like to endorse a movie I just recently discovered uh, a film from 2007 called Sunshine, directed by Danny Boyle. Sunshine is a science fiction action thriller movie, and despite being well over a decade old, it still holds up. The movie takes place in 2057. And the Earth is starting to freeze because the sun is dying. So a group of astronauts have to go to space to blow up the sun to restart it. But of course, if you've ever seen any movie that takes place in space, something goes wrong. It's easy to see how Sunshine's influenced by Stanley Kubrick's 2001 Space Odyssey. But without it, I would argue that We wouldn't have movies like Gravity with Sandra Bullock or even Christopher Nolan's Interstellar. There's a lot of similarities and parallels between those three movies. And I think it really starts with Sunshine. And it kind of just was off the radar. At least it was off my radar. Good luck finding Sunshine easily because it's not on Netflix. It's not on Hulu. I had to get it the old-fashioned way and I had to just put down money and buy it. But it's absolutely worth checking out, especially if you're a uh, science fiction nut. Unless you're terrified of that, then definitely don't watch it because it gets really weird and creepy at the end.
2: Um, why can't we just borrow his copy then? Why do we even have to think about this? Uh, well, the rest of you obviously are on your own. Um, so I also want to say that I, I think and I hope that most of these endorsements or all of these endorsements will be uh, on our show page. You just go to wnpr.org WNPR.org slash Colin. You'll find the show there. And we post the show on the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page. And I put it up on my Facebook page, too. People are going to want to know where to get that oscillating hoe. I don't know about the rest of this stuff. but uh, And obviously, oscillating hoe is fun to say. Uh, for lots of reasons. So anyway, we're doing a few more endorsements here. Uh, I'm taking a little bit of time between them because we didn't really plan the time out quite accurately. But uh, so uh, our next one is the big boss, uh, senior director. Is that her title, senior director? No, we don't know. We, it's just it, it, she's the big boss. Uh, Katie Tularski from uh, WNPR, where she's the big boss.
8: I'm endorsing Max and Lily's Closet, which is a kids' consignment store in West Hartford, Connecticut. I have a two-year-old and a six-month-old, and, you know, I love shopping for them, but I don't want to spend a lot of money, especially when they're going to grow out of something really quickly. So uh, Max and Lily's has not just clothes, they have strollers, baby carriers, shoes, toys, they have all sorts of things. So... It's a great place to go and save a little money. Check it out. Max and Lily's Closet. They just moved into a new space on Prospect Avenue in West Hartford. Happy shopping.
2: You know, this is not an endorsement. We have one more endorsement to go anyway. But one thing that I forget to say to Ben McGrath was yesterday I was thinking about Wiffle Technology and the way in which Wiffle Technology kind of dials down as long as people aren't, you know, being jerks about it, uh, kind of dials down the velocity and impact and everything of ordinary baseball. So you don't break windows and lose the ball and all this kind of stuff. And I was thinking, you know, maybe they should expand into other stuff. I was even thinking, wiffle wars would be great. You know, countries that don't really get along very well, but don't really want to have a terrible war where lots of people die and stuff like that. You could you could just say, well, like, buy some wiffle tanks, you know, and wiffle guns and stuff like that. And that way, you know, you won't hurt each other all that. But you could still fight and you can still get all the aggressions out that have been stirred up by your religious war or your land war or whatever this thing is um, but you know it would be Wiffle uh, and so I'm sure the rest of you also have lots of good applications for Wiffle technology and I don't know what you should do. well they're in Shelton, call them, let them know alright, uh, final one of these re- pre-recorded endorsements is uh, of course our very own Kyone Wolf, the voice that you've already heard on the show today, she's our technical producer and announcer, let's see uh, what she's got
7: Savers, I will preach the gospel of Savers for the rest of my life. Savers is a giant secondhand store. They're all throughout the country. And what makes it different besides it being giant and some of the other ones being smaller is they organize their clothing by size, uh, whereas some others organize strangely by color. They also will give you a 30% off coupon if you bring in five small donation bags. And if you sign up to be a member, which is free, you get 50% off. Uh, every couple of months, I do 50% off days for everybody and then a sort of secret 50% off day for members. And um, I just bought a house. I went from a one-bedroom apartment to this new house. And I really underestimated how much stuff I would need. And I think if there wasn't Savers and Facebook Marketplace and Craigslist, I would be deep, deep, deep in the hole as opposed to deep in the hole. And that is really nice psychologically. So if you're looking for some cool secondhand stuff, I recommend, if possible, to have two hours to go through any savers because you really want to immerse yourself in the selection. I can't recommend savers enough. So savers, savers, savers.
2: All right. The message I'm getting is savers. Uh, And you obviously could go in there and say, any oscillating hose by any chance? Um, all right, so um, I'm going to come back to where I started the show and just mention, of course, that Burt Reynolds uh, has died. Um, you know, it might be nice to sort of seek out one of his uh, one of his movies. The one that I really recommend is starting over, as I said at the beginning of the show. I really think it's a beautiful, subtle, funny uh, rom-com. I haven't seen it in a while, but I'm guessing most of it will would hold up pretty well, even given the changing times. Um, but uh, he was very proud, among other things, of The Longest Yard, the original Longest Yard. Uh, so you, you want to make sure you get the first one. I, I think that's a big key. If it has Adam Sandler in it, back slowly away from it. Um, the woman with whom I share my life would encourage you to watch The End, a comedy that he did with his very good friend Dom DeLuise, uh which he thinks uh, also very, very funny and maybe a tiny bit underrated. Uh, and, you know, and there always is deliverance. Uh, deliverance... Is a remarkable Burt Reynolds performance. It's also just a very remarkable, tightly wrapped performance uh, among the four actors who are going on this arduous and terrifying trip. Um, so, uh, Deliverance, if you've never seen it, you should probably just see it anyway because there's two or three things that kind of have for good or ill become tropes uh, of American pop culture and also because you know, it's actually you know, and, and, and Burt Reynolds, it's a very different performance. I can't really think of a Reynolds performance that closely mirrors this one and if you listen to Fresh Air you know he almost died by, because he insisted on doing this insane stunt that even stunt doubles would not do. Anyway uh, so the other thing that I'll quickly say I don't know how we're going to deal with this but the most talked about thing in our newsroom right now is none of these things that have just been endorsed. It's the second season of Ozark. And we already did a conversation about the first season of Ozark. But, you know, Carmen said in her endorsement that there aren't too many uh, things on television that explore moral questions and moral philosophical questions. I would argue that Ozark, from a very low point... (laughs) (laughs) On the horizon is looking at moral questions and exploring sort of moral distinctions. Anyway, uh, we may have to do a whole other episode, but the regular old nose for the panel, that'll be back next week. Uh, Thanks for listening to this Substitute Nose.